0: Thanks for joining me on another episode of the Brenneman Blueprint. Awesome to have you guys all here today. I appreciate everyone who supported the podcast. I just noticed a big uptick in, in reviews and just in the numbers the last few months. And then really over the last, let's say, call it 18 months, the podcast has grown a lot. And so I want to do a few of these kind of callback episodes to episodes that came out really early uh, that if you're a new listener, you you probably would have missed unless you you know read every possible episode that came out, you know, carefully on what was what was out there i want to go back and highlight another episode that came out really early actually the seventh episode i did was with gabe horstick and Gabe's someone that i admire really a lot he's a a multi-family investor in the chicagoland area he started out just buying a three unit in the lincoln park neighborhood and now he's doing new construction development deals with you know 20 30 million dollars so i'm excited to see everything that the kind of the Career trajectory so far for Gabe. You know, he was uh, a lender uh, when I met him and was just kind of thinking about getting going more actively, doing more than just having that, the, the couple three units he had at the time. So, really proud of Gabe. And one thing that I really admire about Gabe is he's really helped. I've, I know quite a few people with mentorship, other people who want to get going in real estate. And so on this episode, Gabe's been on a couple times before, and but on this very first one we did, you know, I had asked him really every question I could think of. Um, so I didn't leave a lot of gas in the tank on new questions for some of the later episodes. I dumped it all in on this first one. And he had really, really a lot of good advice uh, for people starting out in real estate investing. So for new investors and for young people. So if that, especially if that's you, that this is definitely worth a listen from cover to cover, end to end, whatever you want to uh, start to end, end to end, you'd, you'd miss it all. Um, start, you know, from start to finish. And, you know, and even if that's not you, there's just a lot of really good in general business and career advice in this. But, you know, since it came out so early, you know, episode seven, this would have came out in like 2021. So it just kind of, as we, you know, sit here today, uh, all the advice is still very applicable and may- maybe more so now that things got a little little tougher when we recorded this, you know, everything was just had been, you know, up for 10 years, you know, and we were in the the thick of like the the peak pricing on everything in the real estate universe. So either way, you know, so this was a great episode, but since it came out so early, want to highlight it and, and put it out there again. So, again, thanks for everyone who's really uh, helped grow the podcast. If you've told anybody about it or left a review, it really means a lot to me. Uh, It's been exciting to see how much it's grown. You know, I wouldn't be replaying an episode if the audience size was the same or anything. But I think we've just had a lot of people, especially around episode uh, somewhere in like the late 30s in terms of the numbers, you know, like episode 40, you know, and then episode 50. Just kind of every month I've noticed this where this has been growing steadily and so I think probably a lot of people that would see this episode come out now, maybe they scroll back to episode seven, but couldn't tell maybe from the title if this is going to be for them or, or, or applicable or old news. And so it's definitely not. And want to want to reshare it with everybody. So hope hope you enjoy. Thanks. Listen, everybody, we all know that real estate is the most proven way to build wealth. But why isn't everyone wealthy from real estate then? It's hard to know where to start and most of the education out there is just complete trash and you end up investing your money on a series of courses instead of in real estate. That's not how this podcast works. We give you the blueprint to successful real estate investing and bring on guests actually willing to share their secrets. I started my real estate investing journey as a freshman in college when I bought my first duplex and have been in the trenches doing deals ever since. And today I now own hundreds of millions of dollars of investment property on this podcast you will learn what you actually need to know to be a successful active or passive real estate investor. And we'll offer our takes on what's happening today so you can navigate this market and build wealth. I'm Drew Brenneman, and this is the Brenneman Blueprint. Today we have Gabe Horstick, a multifamily real estate investor and founder of Base3 Development. I'm excited to bring him on. Gabe has either acquired, redeveloped, or developed $130 million of multifamily property across 50 different different assets. And he formerly was a banker at Wells Fargo and made the successful transition from a a lender on multifamily property to an, an owner of multifamily property. So, and I guess not just multifamily, we've also got some office and other
1: deals in there too, which we'll get into, but absolutely. So excited to have you on. Thanks for being on Gabe. Yeah. Super excited to be here. Thanks for having me. So Uh, My name is Gabe Horstick. I'm founder of Base3 Development, a Chicago-based development company. Prior to Base3 Development, I co-founded Campbell Street Asset Management, which under my leadership grew to over $100 million of assets owned and managed here in mostly in the city of Chicago. And as you mentioned, prior to that, I worked in, in the corporate world at Wells Fargo Bank. So I've, I've had a really interesting run and uh, excited about the future and happy to talk about the past. Yeah,
0: let's go back maybe to wherever the beginning is. So where did kind of your uh, event adventure here in real
1: estate get started? Well, we could go back really far. Uh, as far as when I was 12 years old, I actually wrote in my um, my sixth grade yearbook, what I wanted to be when I was uh, 20 years later at the age of 32. And I was one of the only people that wrote they wanted to be a real estate developer. In right. fact, I even said how many units I would have or what I was building with some level of detail. So I knew I wanted to do this from a very early age. How did you even know that?
0: Okay, I probably didn't know what a real estate developer was I was 19. Like I didn't, it's like
1: going to college. How did How do you even know to look into this? So it's funny. I'm, I'm very close with my dad. He's someone I admire and, and respect and, and love. Um, he was a businessman, uh, for most of his career. Uh, and he would always give me, uh, clippings from the wall street journal. Nice. And one clipping I remember was that he, uh, it was in the wall street journal. There was a developer who was sitting out, uh, a market downturn and he said it was a bad time to buy. And so he was focusing on his car collection Wow. I thought that was kind of cool. And yeah. uh, And then also he, he had me building things as a kid. I was always playing with power tools. We built a clubhouse in our backyard and I always liked the idea of something tangible that you could build. Yeah. Um,
0: So yeah. Then you said you worked initially for a developer somewhere.
1: Yeah. So um, when I was 18, starting, starting college, I actually worked for a local home builder uh, in the, Wisconsin, southeast Waukesha area, a guy named uh, Gilmore uh, Construction, Gilmore Builders. And um, I actually worked as a bricklayer. I was a carpenter. I was a painter. I was a landscaper. And I even, you know got to wax the guy's boat. Yeah, so I I would work cleaning up job sites and um, sort of funny, uh, I actually got carpal tunnel within the first three months of working this job. These are all hard jobs, the ones you mentioned, or it's like there's no an yeah. easy one in there. Even, it was even, crazy, We'd be I'd be pushing a 300 pound wheelbarrow, I'd be driving, you know, uh, uh, backhoes yeah. and other things. So it was, it was really a great place though, to understand the hands-on aspect of what it means to be a builder and to be in yeah. the construction business as as a homeowner. Nice. So, so that was, uh, that was a great experience. And then, yeah, um, like yourself, and that's how we really connected. I went to UW Madison um, where I got a degree in real estate and finance. So,
0: Nice. And then I know you got your real estate license at some point in there. What?
1: Is- yeah. Yeah. No, that's uh, it's, it's nice you mentioned that. That was actually my early uh, intro into being in real estate. At, at 19, I got my real estate license in Wisconsin. And so while I was at UW Madison, I actually hustled uh, nights and weekends selling condos and houses. And I actually worked for a local developer who uh, was my mentor and, and very good friend. And we're still f- very close friends to this, this day. In fact, it's, it's great. I'm very proud to say I'm actually a mentor to his son. So I'm helping with their, their family business in Madison still to an extent. Nice. So, um,
0: how would you find clients then? So, okay, as a
1: teenager, you know, that seemed like it'd be hard to find clients or are not in like a yeah, professional that, circle. That, that's actually a great question. Um, so I worked for this developer and unfortunately I didn't get to sell any of his projects or properties, but I met friends that were graduating from UW-Madison and taking professional jobs in, oh, nice. in Madison. Yeah. So, I mean, we're not talking, you know, massive sales volume, but enough to, you know, help pay for my first apartment in Chicago. Yeah, uh, but, and then, but actually
0: yeah. that's impressive that they would hire you for that,
1: rely well, on you. They didn't know anyone they, else. Or, or they thought you do what you were doing even at that early age. Yeah, so they, you yeah, know. it was sort of a, a fake it till you make it moment. But actually, interesting side story is that uh, I grew up in Wisconsin, uh, like yourself, and we had a family farm uh, in the Oconomowoc area, yeah, nice. and um, it was a farm that my, my grandparents bought for my grandfather and my grandmother's retirement. And uh, my grandmother had passed away years prior to me getting my real estate license, but I knew that this was a property that had to be sold at some point and oh, uh in, in around '05, during the home building boom i actually was able to secure what ended up being a multi million dollar listing for this um family yeah. farm and ultimately sold it to a, a local home builder who uh closed on the land in 2008 uh wow. 2 weeks prior to the, the collapse of lehman so it was a very uh, uh, exciting yeah. and and somewhat frightening time. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that that was really how I got in at an early age, and I I recommend it to your viewers or whoever's watching this because it's really just paying a fee and taking a class, and any I mean anyone can basically do it, and there's very low barriers to entry. And um, even when I first you know got my corporate job after school, I would be selling properties on the side just to make extra money and. Yeah. Have extra money to then invest in real estate. Yeah. So, and
0: then you're you're in the game. And so what so okay, we went to UW Madison, then you you already have your real estate license, and then your first job was the Wells Fargo one?
1: Uh yes, yes. Uh that's correct. So it's funny, I I never envisioned being a banker. I always wanted to be a real estate developer but on good advice from some of the people I'd worked with at Madison in the development world I was told that this would be a great way to sharpen my financial yeah. acumen and get really good exposure to commercial real estate so I moved here in 2006 here being Chicago and took a job as an analyst and you know gradually worked my way up to being a loan officer um, what I enjoyed most about that bank was I made some of my best friends in that, that job and that corporate environment, many of which I'm still really close with to this date. And then also I had a lot of really cool clients, a lot of middle market real estate developers who were doing their own one to $20 million deals. And a lot of these people were impressed um, by my, my active role in starting to buy my own properties yeah. at an early age. Yeah. I would so. be today where that's, that's really a uh, differentiator. makes you... It's you no know, unique to
0: a lot of the bankers i would be talking to. For yeah. Sure.
1: Well, and, and so a lot of the clients actually at the bank became close friends of mine and were able to refer people and trades. Um, so to the extent I, I wanted to buy my own property, I had people I could go to and say, hey, you were successful. How did you do it? Where did you start? What was your first building? Yeah. And um, and that's something that now that I'm a little more senior in my career, I, I love doing for other young people to get them excited about yeah. the business.
0: So what would you say was one of the main things that you, you learned at Wells Fargo then?
1: Uh, really, it was just a general understanding of how debt worked and what level of leverage could be provided and how much equity was needed and really being a good risk manager. And that's something that I've really taken with me from my, my banking days is being a good manager of risk, because as you grow a real estate portfolio, you, you really are a risk manager. And right. so I think being somewhat conservative and understanding your downside, which is something that's very commonly discussed at the bank, and um, understanding leverage exposure and what is the worst possible case because i, I worked through really the worst of financial right. times in 08 9 10 when the the financial downturn happens right
0: because so, was, i was going to ask the next thing what exactly years were these because like 2007 ish yeah so. yeah
1: yeah that's correct so i started my year uh, my banking career at wells fargo in 2006 and it was a great time to be at the bank you know we were lending at the time i remember we had a, a retail developer and we would we were financing a four million dollar Walgreens with a hundred thousand dollars down that wow. he could then potentially sell for f- five million dollars. Yeah. So and a lot of those those properties had very little equity, very little um, you know sponsorship skin in the game, as we say in the business. Right. And uh, lo and behold, Walgreens hit pause on their expansion, and we had land and yeah that we had loans on with really no exit strategy. So what it also taught me too is that is is you take risk as a developer or an investor in real estate, as long as you are willing to work with your creditor to solve a problem or work through something difficult and really can stand tall and and figure out a problem, it's very uncommon to to go through total financial hell. I mean, banks do not want to take the property. And so th- that's the funny thing was my time at the bank seeing workout situations yeah. where projects didn't work out and seeing what people did and what their profile was as a borrower. And then basically being able to say, all right, that didn't work, that put them in financial straits. And actually one of the biggest takeaways that I received from my time in banking was that the people who got outside of their lane and started doing other sorts of deals were those who got the worst hurt and specifically, I had a lot of clients that were multifamily investors throughout Chicago lands mostly. And the guys that stayed in multifamily but ventured into condominium and for sale, where you have to count on certain things happening, right. uh, those were the guys that took a major hit. And the ones that survived were the guys that maintained a stable multifamily portfolio. So that was uh, that was a really big takeaway um, from from being at the bank. Um, so then, was that more about? why
0: multifamily
1: is great, let's say that lesson, or really more why specialize and stay in your lane? I think it's certainly a combination of the two, but I would say that multifamily continues to be the favored investment because financing is readily available and equities is shockingly readily available. One thing I do want to point out that we were talking about earlier is that... um, Working in a corporate environment was a great way to start my career because I I was able to have income, which was important, but also I had some spare time on my hands. And so it was during that time frame that I was able to go outside of the corporate world and begin dabbling as an entrepreneur, like I said, selling properties on the sides. And, you know, I like to joke that while I was... You know, buying my first property uh, in Chicago land and doing all the work myself, all my friends were watching college football. Yeah, And it, it really, what's most exciting about real estate is you can really get out what you put in and no one's ever going to say you can only own so much right? or you can only make so much. You really dictate your own success. And yeah. at the end of the day, you're the only person you can look at if, if you have a lot of it or, or very little. So
0: yeah, no, that's good. Yeah. And that's an interesting memory then in terms of missing college football and other stuff, because I've I got similar stuff where even when the Cubs were in the world series, I was dealing with a emergency at the property I owned in Madison. Oh, okay. but I, didn't, I don't think I saw a game of it almost. Uh, yeah. Cause we had a, a, a shower mixer just leak into the wall. Oh, Remember, you know, across the, that happened. Yeah. That, um, anyways. And then, yeah, we were, you know, for that, that deal, we're self-performing the work just cause that's, we didn't, we didn't have it was it the only me. property up there. Yeah. So yeah, that, um, just me and me and my dad putting that wall back together. That's amazing. So, but Family any, business. Yeah. But anyways, the, um, yeah, that's, yeah, that's, that's interesting to, to hear. So then what did you, it was kind of your first, so you're doing stuff, let's say nights and weekends while you're working at Wells Fargo, but what, what specifically did you do? You're,
1: yeah, no, that, that's a great question. So it's funny when I moved to Chicago at the age of 21, going on 22 with the, the bright dream of being a real estate investor, I was constantly scouring for properties. And I didn't realize that it could be as easy to buy a big property as, as much as a small property. So after literally looking for about a year and almost losing hope, uh, I stumbled across a property that was off market in the Lakeview neighborhood of Chicago. And a good college friend and I, a guy I actually met at Madison in yeah. class, really great guy. We're still close friends to this day. Uh, we scraped our money together and we bought this this little four flat and uh, did all the work ourselves and cleaned up the units, you know, put some paint on it. And it was uh, it was a very mismanaged, undervalued property, and so we bought it off market. And what I remember most was paying, you know, a certain price for it and then getting an appraisal back that was immediately. $30,000 more than what we had paid. Wow. So it was at that moment that, that I realized that just by closing on this deal, just by taking ownership, I made $30,000. And yeah. I started comparing that to the toil of having a corporate job and you know the light bulb went on. Yeah. I, I don't think the light bulb was frankly bright enough at the time, but what was interesting about that property is my friend and I had actually planned on each living in one of the apartments. And we had a real basic Excel model that basically said, okay, if we buy this building for this amount of money and we put down around 20%, what will our cash flow be and what's our yield on equity? And it looked like it was around 8% and not even knowing about, thinking about vacancy and all the other intricacies of underwriting it, it said, you know what? 8% feels really good with surety and we're getting a hard asset and we can live here, so there's actual value. Were were you? Under,
0: were you underwriting appreciation or anything in here? No, it hadn't even I'll tell you why I started mind. laughing because the same thing that I did on my first deal, I say the same thing to everyone when they're like, what should I do for syndicating and this and that and all this complicated stuff? And I, w- I always say the same thing. There's so much going on. Like, Just try to figure out your monthly cash flow and really be confident in that. Know your rents and your expenses and that might be all you'd be able to focus on in your first deal. Like the price you're paying, this is complicated to value building or uh, how to how to do everything and close it just right. So yeah, my first deal, all my math was this seems like a good buy and I'm making, it's a $220,000 house. I'm making $200 a month and I can live in it, included in that. Yeah, so I guess probably. worst case, I will move out eventually. And that room's probably worth like four or 500 bucks and I'll make, 600 bucks a month or less and just hold it if I overpay and screw up. So that's actually a shock. Kind of that's your answer. Cause that is the yeah. same thing I was thinking Isn't where just otherwise you would have been looking and underwriting deals for the next three years. You got Well, gotta-
1: and, and that's, that's a funny point is that another thing that stood out to me when I was evaluating buying that property was, can I live with having this money tied up indefinitely? Because real estate is inherently illiquid and you can't control getting out of yeah. it you can really only control getting into it when you buy it and so for that particular property i basically made the decision that can i live with making 8% on whatever my down payment was and the answer was yes now what was really interesting about that property that has become a recurring theme in my career and my business strategy was that we essentially bought something that was undervalued and mismanaged that needed a little bit of work Uh, It was a great first property because it wasn't a gut. It wasn't in court. It didn't have major, major issues. It was literally, let's go in and give it a nice coat of paint, put some landscaping in front, uh, do some new pavers in back, fix the deck. But that was pretty much it. And it was interesting. Within six months of buying it, we reappraised the the property, and it had increased by approximately 15 to 20%. Wow. And so at that time, we were able to take a loan – and I'm gonna just use hypothetical numbers, but let's say hypothetically we bought the building for $800,000 and within 12 months it appraised for almost a million dollars, we were then able to lever up, meaning increase the debt to the incrementally higher appraised value. Right. And what I actually find interesting as I, I go out and raise money and do other projects is that most people don't understand when you have that capital event, it's actually tax-free. Right, so You're monetizing appreciation tax-free and that's the, the key to really building wealth in real estate. And so, um, with this particular property, which it's now about 13 years later, I actually still own it. And I kid you not, this is sort of funny. I've refinanced this property at least six times. Yeah. Tax wow. free every time. And, uh, and that's, that's the power of the long, long-term long investment strategy. Yeah. And, and I say this to, to young people I mentor and am trying to help get their start in the business. I basically say, you know, if you buy a property in your early 20s, you're gonna blink and you're gonna be an old guy like me in his late 30s. And so it's the power of compounding. I mean, that building I was referencing is my first property, and when I bought it, the units were rented for 1,200 a month for a two-bed, one-bath, which sounds incredibly inexpensive for Lakeview, Chicago. Within 12 months, we had bumped the rents up to market of around 1500 And since that time, I've done more extensive renovation, and I'm renting that unit for about 2700 Wow. And no one knows what the future may hold. No one knows with inflation and other... You know different factors at play that maybe twenty seven hundred today could look really cheap in ten years, and maybe it's thirty five hundred. But right. at that time, maybe the cup of Starbucks coffee you're drinking for three bucks is seven bucks, and the average worker isn't making fifty grand; they're making one hundred and ten. And that's just the big picture of inflation, and it is inevitable. And that's why I, I continue to be a big believer in this. So
0: yeah, and it's interesting. I mean, on those on these multifamily deals, yeah, you can you reset your rates every year in, in terms of the rental rate, and you're a some of your biggest costs are relatively fixed, you know, where you're like, you're locking in your debt. You know, typically we're using fixed rate interest. Yeah, and I know you are too, uh, you know, fixed rate loans. And so you've locked in your biggest cost. And if you have uh, rates, everything starts running up, you're going to have a big, obviously your expenses increase too. your operating expenses. But that's a smaller number than your rent.
1: Absolutely. So well, and another thing I'd point out too is a major risk mitigant and buying property in a big city in desirable areas is that there's a really deep renter pool. And so, you know, the building I just mentioned, it's a smaller building. Um, it's a was a great starter building, but in uh over a hundred and what seventy months of ownership, I think I've only had about three months of vacancy. Wow. And so the other thing on that note is that even if rents take a hit in a major city in a good area with a presentable building that has decent curb appeal you will find a renter you'll yeah. get bodies in there and actually it was funny on that first deal because we managed it so closely we went so far as to find random roommates on craigslist and put them in a oh, really? in a coach house to just get a bigger rent and a bigger yeah. revenue easy to do on your first deal but hard to do as you scale up a business so yeah we've it, done
0: we did that early on too with some like a winter lease so like the rents are down seasonally here, let's say in the Midwest. Like, yeah. so we, we on a deal where we had rented all the units at the rents we wanted to hit. And then uh-huh. we got stuck with like a November rental. Oh, that's so crazy, we man. went on Craigslist and found three p- guys and then each they rented a room for six months. April, they were all happy to go. Cause they, it was like, everyone was sort of moving to Chicago. Mm-hmm. So they were actually, they were happy with this arrangement. Oh, like hundred percent. And then we raised, we charged full market price in May, did our refi. Same story you're talking about. So, yeah, that uh, it's funny. We're doing a lot of the same stuff.
1: Well, and it's fun- you have to be nimble and you have to be creative and you have to be willing to go through some yeah. strange situation. Yeah. of Finding random people off the street <laughs> to live together. Yeah. I, I, can't, I started- can't believe I did that. But when I was. 24 25 and i had to make make the mortgage i yeah. did what i had to do within reason and uh it was it was sort of funny just being you know creative and saying hey there's real value here. as, as a person moving to chicago and i can speak firsthand i remember when i moved here a nice apartment for a one bedroom was 1300 a month and then if you had a two bedroom it was 1500 a month 1600 month. Right. We'll divide that by two and there's clearly value there so that was that was an interesting pivot at, at that point of my career but um so yeah, I mean it really all started with that first building, which it's sort of funny. After owning it 13 years, the city just passed an ordinance that allows me to add even another unit to it. So I'm going to make that building a four unit into a five unit. And in doing so, my rents are probably around 250% higher than when I bought it. So wow. it's funny just finding more ways to add yeah. value and just be creative and be nimble. But um
0: and do you for the the uh, cash out refinance being tax-free, do you have any how, how do you typically explain that to just, let's say, the average investor or person? I've got an analogy I'll give if
1: you Yeah, no, that, you that's want, a or... great question. Um, I'd like to use dollar examples. So for instance, just saying, you know, there's a price appreciation that's often not captured when you look at just yield or if you're looking at yield but not looking at the exit and the IRR and the equity multiple. And so I would basically just say, hey, we we buy a building and we run essentially a conveyor belt where we're buying something that needs work let's say we pay you know, a million dollars for it and we put 200 grand in it. And if we're doing our job well, there's at least a 15 to 20% value margin, meaning that for every million dollars of investment, we're creating a value that's worth a million too. So we're adding value. Yeah. And we're adding value by doing renovation and in- increasing rents, or we're adding value by underpaying for something and turning around management. Um, but we're basically creating incremental value. So in my scenario of buying something for a million putting a million two into it and then for instance getting it to appraise for a million five we can then monetize that value and I would normally just draw out like a like a yeah. bar that says this is the value these are the amounts and then say well we can monetize that value tax free by now lending against taking a loan out against 75 to eighty percent of the marginal increase value which in that case eighty percent on a million five would be um I think it's a million, I'm, too. I'm a smart I'm, guy. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. there we go. No. Some of these is funny. The, the these human calculator, incremental, everyone.
0: No, the incremental
1: stuff is yeah. like
0: that. If you were said a million five, five, I don't know. But these brown yeah. numbers is we actually do the same math all
1: the time. Well, well, and so what's really interesting is in that scenario where if you buy a building for a million dollars, you put 200 grand into it and you get it to appraise for a million five and you can now put a loan on it for 80 percent of a million five. Right. You can essentially have a property with no original equity in it. Yeah and you're basically playing with the house money. You're, right. you're, you're basically using debt as your equity, and then you're able to recuperate all your equity and roll on to the next project. So that's, that's what is, in my mind, the most exciting thing about real estate is even if you can't have that value increase day one, Maybe in five years, the loan comes up and you revisit the property and maybe it's not worth a million five, maybe it's worth two million. And now you can put a loan on it for a million five to a million six. And not only do you have your original principal back, but you have additional equity out beyond your costs. And so I've had a multiple uh, instances in my career where I've financed 100 to 150% of my project costs. Nice. The sooner we can do that, the better. But in the long run, when you're a long-term horizon investor, in, in summary, what's so interesting about increasing uh, your debt on a property is you're able to have a tax-free capital event, uh, which is, you know, it's sort of funny. I have some extremely sophisticated uh, investors and people I've worked with. And, you know, when I've given them a distribution check and said, here's your original principal returned in full, they basically said, well, what's the tax implication, which I said that there is none. And that's why we're in this business. It's incredibly tax efficient. And you're able to see an appreciation on a value monetize it by increasing your loan and basically take that capital out and redeploy it. And so it's, it's funny as I look at my original first early on deals, um, probably the first 15 or 20, I, I think I'm basically playing all with with financing. Yeah. With, with non-recourse agency debt and pretty much have returned 100% of the capital, so. Yeah, it's a
0: great strategy to build your portfolio. And one, you know, what's interesting too, I think that's different and we should point out with, let's say a multifamily rental property compared to, let's say borrowing more money against your single family house or something that you own. On all these deals to support the higher price, you've done something to increase the value by increasing the rents so now the rents are higher the income of the property is higher and it can support this higher loan payment so in a lot of instances let's say in that first deal you're talking about had an eight percent cash on cash then you increase the rents a lot did a refi maybe then at that point the cash on cash went back to eight but now you've pulled out all your money so it's a really compelling you know option if that's how you want to go about Building your portfolio you know we're both younger guys so this is a you know a good option for us and then you know when um a lot of older investors they're more at a point where they well they refi when rates drop but they don't want to pull out money they're trying to pay debt down so this is a great strategy for building your portfolio though and and really minimize taxes because right you can you created the value on that first four unit you refi money out you can go buy a second deal with that money if you want and you still own the first one there's no tax So yeah, that's a great explanation. And one way, what I was getting at was, if you had any analogies about uh, how to explain it. And one, what I've started doing to explain to just let's say just a non-real estate investor how it works, like you have you have a car. This is the analogy, right? Whether you own money, owe money on that car or not, like just imagine you do, Mm -hmm. but you could could have borrowed more, and you decided, yeah, I want to borrow more now. There's no tax on that. Like you just took out a lot larger loan on your car, pay off the original loan, and that's you know. You just borrowed more money. Why would there be tax on that? Yeah. That's what we're doing. The yeah. only thing that's crazy is the renter is paying the mortgage basically. Yeah. So you you can just have the money and it's not like a car where it's dropping in value, these are going up in value. Yeah. So that that's how I've explained to a few people who don't who's like a totally foreign thing. You know, it's 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 uh and the other thing that's if you redeploy that money that you pulled out from the loan into another investment of some sort, you can also deduct the higher interest. So you you're able to, you know, actually reduce your taxes doing yeah, this because you have a, a higher deduction. On all sides. Yeah. yeah, so no, interesting. The first, so then that first deal, the how long? So you're working at Wells Fargo. You bought the first four unit. How long? You know, since you bought 50 buildings, so I know there's more more deals here. When was the next deal? How that work?
1: So the next deal was interesting. It was actually the same owner that sold me the first building. She had a building nice. next door. Same thing, and uh, I didn't know her. I d- I actually bought the first one through a broker, so I just wrote wrote up a purchase and sale agreement, mailed it to her, and next thing you know, I get a get an email back that she's interested, and wow. maybe she'd sell that one too. And uh, what I realized that was it was sort of a funny way of almost playing Monopoly and acquiring two properties, getting operational efficiencies, and then actually ultimately uh, being able to wrap those into a single loan with a bigger uh, dollar a month oh, nice. loan. Uh, and you know, theoretically, down the road, I think there's more value in a portfolio and a, yeah. a package Were those so. next to each other? Yeah, those are those are two adjacent yeah. buildings. If I'm not yes. mistaken, I think I even tried to sell them to you at yeah. one point. No, so I you, know you, I, you I, likely do know the assets. Yeah, but I'm I'm glad I hung on. And then you know, as I mentioned, it's sort of funny these same buildings. A new ordinance was introduced by the city of Chicago that allows you to add units. So right. I'm adding units to both of them and. When I do that, I'll be able to increase my rent by another 30%. And so the math there, I've actually done this before. So I, I bought these two buildings. And then it's funny. I bought a building uh, in East Lakeview that was a really spectacular deal. And this one really allowed me. And this was all while I was working a corporate job. Yeah. You know, I'd like to jokingly say 40 hours a week. Yeah. But it was that. And I was working yeah, hard. Yeah, bankers putting, hours. You know, putting in the real-time thing. banker hours. But, um, you know, I, I moved on and it's funny, I, I found a major return in adding units to existing buildings. Yeah. And so funny story, my third building I bought, and this was in 2012, so it was at year four of my corporate job, I actually bought a four unit graystone in East Lakeview, right by Lake Michigan. And um, I'll just talk rough numbers because it is actually interesting to take note and I don't want to get super into the weeds and details of the numbers. Yeah. But I basically bought a four unit building Greystone for a little under $600,000. And what's interesting is because I was actually representing myself as as the broker, it was, you know, call it $580,000 purchase price. But I received a two and a half percent commission. So I needed to at the time put down around 120 grand, but I had a 2% commission. So I wasn't putting down 120 grand. I was actually putting down more like 95. Nice. So fast forward this building, I, you know, borrowed some money and I updated the units and, uh, I put in a, maybe another $150,000 and I subsequently actually had the, the building value at a million three. Wow. So I was all in on this property for around $950,000, a million a 1000000 dollars I'm, I'm sorry, actually, no, I was in for around 750, and I got yeah. it appraised for a million three. So basically in equity, I'd created a million three less my costs, and I was able to refinance it, take 100% of my original investment out plus another 20%. So yeah. let's say I started with 115 grand in, I put another 100, $150,000 rehab costs. So I had a total all in of 250. I was actually able to cash out something like $400,000. Wow. Now it doesn't end there. In 2015, or perhaps it was 2016, I found some obscure city record that actually said that you didn't actually buy a four unit, you bought a six unit. So I found a very uh, intelligent architect who was able to check the files of the city and she basically said, yeah, you know what, this is a six unit. reason being that this building was at one point a boarding house and there was some obscure city record actually said it was a six unit. So that was my time to take another bite of the apple and I got plans and permits in place to add another two units to an already lucrative deal. And so I spent another $150,000 per unit to add two additional units that in the Lakeview market are worth approximately $300,000 yeah. a unit. So by spending $300,000, I was able to increase the incremental value of the building by $600,000. Right. And in summary, I was able to get the building reappraised for around $2 million with an all-in basis of around a million one, a million $1, 150. Wow. And put a loan on that particular asset, You know. At like a million three, five, a million four. Wow, and this is again after having already refinanced yeah. multiple, 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 multiple times. And so it's just sort of funny. I look at I look at starting out and I look at advice I give to to young people and the biggest piece of advice I would give is to be patient and find a really good deal for the first one. And if you find something you like, beg borrow steal put as much of your own resources in it as you can because if it's successful you're going to want to enjoy the fruits of that yeah. and so it's funny on this building i had the opportunity to bring in a partner and i didn't and i'm glad i didn't because yeah. it was it was like an 11 on levered return <laughs> and these are as you know very hard to find and uh so now going forward, doing bigger projects, it's not always practical just to use your own resources. But it, it was funny that literally one building allowed me to replicate my whole corporate salary. Yeah, and well. And then some. And that that was when I really felt truly really comfortable leaving my corporate job. But again, this was all sort of a funny nights and weekend thing for me.
0: Yeah, it's fun. It's crazy hearing this because then as you're describing this third deal, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, well, yeah, Wells Fargo was, we're, we're done with this at that point. Once, once this first appraisal happen not this thing in 2015 with the two years. but once this first deal hits and now this is worth a million three i'm in for 750 where yeah wells fargo we're done with this (laughs) yeah that would be a half a decade of work at
1: wells fargo and i did it nights and weekends on one good project right
0: then at that point you're thinking wow what if i could do like one of these a year Oh yeah well that's that's the
1: funny thing is it's you don't have to do 10 deals in a year you focus on doing one good one and keep yourself busy you know and it's that's a funny thing as I've progressed in my own career is that a lot of it is just about finding the satisfaction of doing the projects. It becomes yeah. less about money, financial resources, uh just having a big portfolio and a lot more about having the fun of the chase. Right. mentorship, helping other people, finding a little bit, you know, of altruism to, to give back a little bit and that's something one of the reasons I love helping mentor young people and getting them in the business and helping my friends find find and buy their first building yeah. and set them up with the lender and the contractor and all the resources because it's it's actually just as fun to see other people do it is to, to do your first deals. And it's I get that same joy in, in helping young people. It's yeah, really cool. I know that I really,
0: yeah, I agree with that. I'm getting more enjoyment at this point point seeing other people like either on the team or some get equity or it's, yeah. it's, it's happy to, it's same here. And then what's interesting too, I really feel like those first deals, it's almost like that was the most, that was the most fun. Like they yeah. don't realize what's going on in a way like this. Uh, I mean, you can speak for yourself, but almost maybe this, the, uh, seeing that first deal happen where, wait a second, this is going to appraise for this much more. And we, uh, you know, you're not sure how it's going to pan out. You're doing this light rehab on your own where you're painting the units and you're, you know I mean? You're the contractor, not sure where this is headed. And then all of a sudden it's like, wait, this is worth.
1: It worked 10% more. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, It actually worked. And you started having to pinch yourself. It's funny. I'll never forget. I had a Wells Fargo client and, uh, sadly I met him. Uh, right before he, he found out he was terminally ill, but he was a very prominent and local multifamily investor who I, we both took a real shining to each other because he saw what I was doing nights and weekends and he, uh you know, he really was kind of impressed that I was a guy like him when he was younger with the gumption to basically say, you know what, I'm going to take a chance. I'm going to just start dabbling. What's the worst that can happen. I'm, I'm going to accept that not everything will work and get comfortable with the possibility that I could fail. Um, because if you don't try, you'll never know. But that was one thing he said to me was that I, I wish I could go back to the early days cause that was the most fun. And this was a guy who went oh. up owning 1500 units locally with no partners or investors, very prominent local guy. Wow. So, that that definitely sticks and that's something that's been you know exciting for me starting you know this new development company is you know feeling like i'm starting my own career for the second time yeah and um just finding the excitement and energy of of working with you know young people that i'm helping mentor and train to yeah to find their own way so um that's something that's been really well it's quite, quite enjoyable yeah
0: let's maybe talk about the how, how What was going through your your mind more so when you had then left Wells Fargo? So you had three deals when you quit or where were you so, at? So
1: yeah, it's kind of funny. Um, I had acquired a couple of four-unit buildings in Lakeview, one in Lincoln Park, and one of them being a total home run that really gave me comfort to leave that I had now sort of a little bit of a cushion. Um, but then it was funny. I actually, uh, through total happenstance, connected with a guy who became my first outside investor and it turns out he was a neighbor, and he was uh, also worked with one of my business partners, and it was sort of interesting. Uh, this guy was an amazing guy, and is still a good friend to this date, and we still own a portfolio together, but I had found a six-unit building, sort of funny at the time, it was $450,000 in Bucktown, yep. and this was when the world was really bad, and um, I was still at the bank, and I put together a basic financial model, and I said, "Hey, you know, this is this deal. We need a whopping two hundred thousand dollars of equity. I don't have it. You might. And uh, why don't we come up with a structure where yeah. you can help us get off the ground, sign a note, and be the controlling partner and the investor, and we can have this really complicated structure." To which he said, "Okay, here's here's what I want. I don't want." all these elaborate hurdles, I want an easy, clean deal, I wanna have some level of control, I'm willing to sign the note, but this is yours to run with, show me what you got. And so that was really when Campbell Street, my predecessor company was formed by buying our first buildings on Campbell Avenue and we subsequently bought probably, you know, another seven, $8 million of buildings in that area. Yeah. And it was funny, I think that was, that was May, 31st of 2013, I left the bank July of uh, 2013. I'll never forget that day, it was yeah. a very joyful day. Yeah, There was a lot of uh, jumping in the air and fist bumping, um, it, you know, exciting. this. this. Um, but anyways, it was funny because I had acquired a portfolio with the same investor just six months after acquiring the first gut renovation project. And it actually was published in the uh, Illinois Real Estate Journal, and it came into my Wells Fargo inbox. And so I was <laughs> like, you know what, it's time. Yeah. And I and I saw a very clear path, and I had uh, you know great great partner to work with on growing Campbell Street, and that was just an amazing time of, of my career. Yeah. And uh, and it, it was really at that point that I felt like it was just okay just to walk away and. You know, banking was great, but a lot of it was, you know, it was kind of wearing on me and I just knew in the back of my head that there's there's more out there and I can pursue the same avenue as a number of my Wells Fargo clients. It's funny. Actually, I just got looked up by one of my favorite Wells Fargo clients last week. It's a group of guys out of Evanston that turn over big multifamily deals and they, they found me online and these guys were real mentors to me while I was at banking and they just kept saying, Gabe, one day. Oh, Just really? keep doing your thing, and they were always willing to help me and talk to me. And um, I'd financed a couple of their projects, and um, so it was sort of funny how that worked out. Yeah, and, but they were my, my point of this. Actually, was they they started their career in banking. A lot of people that don't get stuck in banking end up going off and being the borrower, right? And even is really cool. My, I'll never forget my my boss, my first boss at Wells Fargo. It was a great lady. Um, she basically said one day you'll be a borrower and there was a lot of people around me that kind of believed in me and they, they didn't take issue with me being an entrepreneur on the side because I worked hard, I got my job done, you know, I was was generally a good employee minus the occasional nap under my desk, (laughs) but, uh, but it was really a great place to start. And so it was really getting to this critical mass and seeing a, a future and a pipeline and a vision to, you know grow to the next step that I, I felt hundred percent comfortable leaving the bank. Yeah. And well, the, and, yeah. So, Oh
0: yeah. If you had more there, go for it. Otherwise I was going to ask, no, and I would just say and this thing. was
1: 2013 and the world was starting to stabilize and it was pretty obvious that we were on the, on the mend and rebounding. So, yeah. Cause
0: a, a big takeaway I have from hearing your, your story and it kind of parallels mine in terms of like, you know, I had a job as well and I quit when I had five buildings. And so oh, I yeah. actually I had five is that, with, uh, with my Blackhawk partners. And then I guess I had two on my own. So I had, anyways, point being like one thing that I'd noticed people doing where we, they need to have like their whole life planned out to quit their job and know every move, Yeah. or they try to do something super complicated where, all right, I'm going to quit. And then I'm going to do this development deal. That's the first deal. And was so we've, we both kind of end up doing the same thing or we got, you know, four or so properties under our belt we own them we're making money off them we did it nights and weekends i mean those years i'm sure it's the same it's the same for you because of the college football thing yeah that's all i did almost nights and weekends was work on these deals but then you know three years go by doing that and you're you're quitting your job and you're you have something that you're already you're already doing it wasn't like all right it's going to be a cold start yeah i'll quit and then I'll, i'll go on linkedin and it'll say like to be like coming soon for four months like it'll be uh you know it's already happening like we already so that i think was a big uh a big thing we both did to be able to quit our jobs yeah no
1: i I couldn't agree more and and that's the thing it's just people that work in finance get sucked in and it gets really cushy and a lot of people on non-entrepreneurial jobs you know they wake up and they're in their mid-30s and they're making great money and they got a great life but the second they leave that job, the, the income stops. Right. And so that's what's sort of interesting about real estate, as you know, is that the goal is to just build a big enough of a portfolio that the, the income is coming in when you're sleeping, when you're waking up, when you're brushing right. your teeth. And uh, just getting really to that critical mass where you can then set some of your personal goals for either future growth or you know other things that are important, giving back, for instance, right. and just finding what's that right comfort point. So. Yeah, it's really interesting thinking of it that way.
0: Yeah, and I'm sure whatever goals you had at the time—I mean, it's crazy to think like you blew through them all.
1: Yeah, that's safe to say.
0: I mean, because I, you know, the same, same has happened with me. Where I mean, in Wisconsin, I I heard about somebody who sold a hundred million dollar portfolio. It was like the biggest deal ever, basically, when I was in high school. Steve Brown—he sold some oh, the, yeah, the private of dorms. That was the yeah. deal. But he, that, that was—I never—that's like a. a, a unimaginable amount of money yeah and it's crazy to think both of us have like bought that and own it like it's just where i would have never thought this buying this first duplex here's where i'm at or when you bought the four unit here's where
1: we are well right and it's it's sometimes hard to know where you'll be and where you can go and what the potential is and you know it's funny when i think about things that give me stress in my life um actually a really good friend of mine said this to me he's like have 22 year old gabe ask 37 year old gabe what you're stressed out about and see what 22 year old Gabe says about okay. what 37 year old Gabe is worrying about. And, you know, take a little bit of stock and how much fun you've had and how good you feel about your career and the things you've done. And it's, it's not all easy as you know, but, and that's, what's really cool. I mean, you and I grew up basically in the town next to each other. We're from small towns and, you know, yeah. it, it, we just worked hard and you know, I have that Midwest work ethic and, you know, I think a lot of it too comes down to doing what you enjoy and working with people you really like. And while, you know, I will say I I love the people I worked with at the bank, anytime you are in a big corporate setting, I know other people, not necessarily me, struggle with sometimes you, you really can't choose who you're working with. And so yeah. As you go down this path, not only potentially having this financial freedom, but also having the freedom of choice of what you do, when you work, who you work with is really... Yeah really a pretty incredible thing so
0: yeah and one thing that i i think would be interesting where i, I know this was the ex- experience having lived a similar thing but yeah wells fargo we're part of a big system here it's not up to you if this loan's happening whereas you walk over to your deal in east lakeview you're calling all the shots it's like totally you're running you crazy you're,
1: it's funny actually another good friend and, and investor and mentor of mine said this to me he's like I never had heard this before, but he actually uh, flew me down to his alma mater in downstate Illinois, and I actually gave a speech to an entrepreneur class, actually a program that he was responsible for founding. And one thing he explained to the students that I really hadn't considered until that time is that every building you buy is its own business. Yeah. It's its own P&L. It's got its own members. It's got its own shareholders. And you can either be the sole shareholder or you can find other shareholders and fund it in different ways. And those shareholders can be bought out. But every building, be it a house, yeah. be it a 20 unit, 100 unit, a 500 unit complex, it's its own business. And it's got its own issues, its own P&L. And um, you just need to to drive the bottom line in order to, to make it successful.
0: Yeah, it's interesting to hear how you described that. I mean, that's definitely true. Every deal is its own own company. I open up a different LLC for every, every deal, different loan, different, different stuff on each one. What about, I think let's circle back. So that first deal you had raised money on what I heard that was interesting. And I had a similar experience where, right. I went to somebody and I explained kind of what we did at the big company I worked at. Like, this is a preferred return. Then it'll be like a multiple tier waterfall. And, you know, so then after a certain IRR will be doing this and this and this, and it was, you know, I'm explaining to a guy who's He's very smart, but he's uh-huh. not in like finance. Mm-hmm. So then he's same response you had. Well, let's just pick a number to split on, like not yeah. just like a straight up split. And then that way too, it's interesting. You do that. It's you're more aligned. Like now it's not a problem if like he wanted to keep the building and you're going, yeah. wait, I'm, I'm my preferred return diluting my interest. You know, like it's not oh, like
1: hundred percent. So
0: that's interesting. You had the same experience. Cause one thing too, that I'd say, you know, it's just kind of, there's not a, there's a playbook kind of for this, but you can just figure out what works for you and your partner or investor. 100%. And then there's no one way to do it. And uh, we've kind of both ended up in unique situations where that's what we've we've done on a lot of deals. But it's for me and it sounds like for you that was our investor actually driving that. Like why yeah. make this super complicated thing that's going to force us to sell in three years, where you could we could just own it as some percentage we think is fair. You get a little extra for doing the work, and then we'll just keep it.
1: Absolutely. And refis, so. No, and I, I wholeheartedly agree yeah. with that. And I, I think really the key is you start wanting to bring in outside money, which is unless you're independently wealthy, let's face it, you have to bring in outside money unless you're just hitting home runs and those are very hard to do. You can't really pick the market, the timing on that. But I think the key is just demonstrating value and demonstrating trust so that yeah. people know that if they are giving you their resources that they've worked hard to earn that those resources are saved because you're a fiduciary of their capital and so that's really the interesting thing is that as people get more skilled in this business it stops being about doing deals and being a developer and being the most creative guy you actually start becoming a money manager yeah and you're you're almost like a bond manager you're managing yield and income and so it's really interesting and um That's why, I mean, as I even scale to bigger, bigger size projects, I I still like doing smaller deals because they're fun and it's cool to get your hands dirty and and get in.
0: Yeah, for sure. And then, too, if you're able to do that with your own money primarily, too, like then that's such a simpler execution. It is. Some of my favorite deals are those ones, too, where it was just I bought a six unit, turned it into a seven unit, the killer deal. Wasn't much more to it, but I just was a only decision maker is very very fast you just walk in there decide done don't need to talk to anybody yeah that was that was great well yeah let's keep talking about deals then i guess well where where would you where were you learning then so you were doing these deals obviously you learned a lot at wells fargo Uh but then where else were you have you had a a mentor
1: in madison you were still talking to him that's a really great question um basically we just bought our first building my, my college friend and I and just threw ourselves into the fire but actually it's funny looking back I think it must have been 08 09, around that time you and I had started talking then and we initially met at a networking function and it might have even been while you were still in school but I asked you how you were doing it and saw like a really great model for like, how to actually replicate this and, and go off and, and do this and it was like wow that that sounds actually pretty straightforward. And so that, that's a funny thing. As I talk to people about getting in this business, find people that are doing what you want to do and ask them a lot of questions. Yeah. And so at the time I asked you, I was blown away by what you had done by that point of your career. I said, how are you structuring it? How easy is this? This sounds almost too good to be true. And and it it was true. And so yeah. it's funny as I've helped my some of my friends get their first loan by their first building. I basically said, here's how I did it here's a deal, here's my pro forma on the deal, this is how it works, it's pretty simple. Yeah, You're gonna buy it for this, you're gonna put this in, these are the assumptions, and we're gonna be in at this cost, you're gonna be done, and it's gonna be worth this, and this is gonna be your cash flow. So just demonstrating to people how it works. And as I, I might've mentioned earlier, I also had a lot of people, Wells Fargo clients who had done it. And then my my friend and mentor in Madison where it was not as technical, but I'd saw what he was doing and how he managed a business and right. just found people that I could go to and ask a lot of questions. And I still to this day, even as I'm doing bigger projects and more sophisticated fundraising, I like going to other people and asking them about their best practices because that's a great way to, to for self-improvement.
0: Yeah, and that's really what I've done too. I mean, Happy to have helped in any way, but the, you know, I'm, I do the same thing. I had a mentor through ULI that I got connected to. I learned a ton from, mm-hmm. and still talk to him. And same thing, I see people doing stuff. I'm asking tons of questions, or even actually just observing what's going on. You know, like where you can kind of see how people are doing things. Where even, and that's part of the reason I started the podcast. Like I see people where they, um, they're getting more deal flow, more passive investors more LPs coming into their deals and that's because you're you're like out there now it's not like a a secret yeah you're absolutely right so then I you know so I just it's the same thing I wasn't I didn't go to like a real estate boot camp or for a week weekend and I know you didn't either where it was some course off an infomercial or something it wasn't that it was you just started doing it and then observe and ask questions for people yeah no you're absolutely correct yeah that that and then just I guess what both got a think critically along the way and make decisions, you yep. know, that, yep. that's the secret maybe. But then let's um let's circle back to some deals. You had mentioned uh, office deal that you bought, obviously I know the deal, but so West Loop neighborhood, Chicago, hottest neighborhood basically last, you know, 10 years almost. So Do you wanna hear about that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, it was a little bit of a right place, right time situation, but um, this now goes back to 2014. Uh, one of uh, our previous partners in my prior company was uh, in control of a a busted office deal in West Loop and basically needed someone to come in and do the turnaround. And so this was actually a really funny way at the time as I started my career and and launched Campbell Street in 2012, 2013 to get started was we would basically find some of these opportunities where we could take over turnaround assets, um, including some multifamily on the north side of Chicago. And then uh, this, this office project in Fulton Market Uh, which, you know, to high level, uh, we'd acquired a note uh, with a basis of around $35 a foot. And um, in the last... 24 months call we were able to sell it somewhere in in the mid 200 a foot range and so now we had to put money in and it was it was five or six years of real work and sweat equity without making anything yeah but it was just you know having other stuff going and the ability to just kind of hang in there and, and stay the course um and actually through that same relationship we had taken over a 19 unit building in rogers park that we assigned an arbitrary value because this partner had a had a mez loan that foreclosed on it of a million three, and uh, we had used some additional resources from him and put around four hundred thousand dollars in that asset. So we were all in at somewhere in the neighborhood of a million seven, a million eight, and then actually we're able to exit that north north of three million dollars uh, nice. with, I think, yeah, we had zero down on that. So yeah, it's sort of interesting.
0: Both, in both those deals, those were. Properties that the lender got back on these Mes loans, and then you were able to take them from right. Uh, the someone throwing the keys back to them at a,
1: a million three loan. Yeah, a million exactly. Nine,
0: and then and then pushing the value to over three.
1: Yeah, that's correct. And what's funny, I look back at that time and it's, I'm finding myself in a similar situation where people that have these opportunities sometimes don't have the young, hungry person with yeah. that is willing to you know, bust their butt yeah. to, to make it happen and, and manage the turnaround. So kind of a little bit of the right place, right time. But it really shown to me that you can actually do deals without having any real money down, maybe without even having recourse. Yeah. Um, so it's sort of interesting just the different opportunities that can come up and you just got to keep your eyes open and, and look for value yeah
0: so, and that's a great great find, great relationship then where the guy's bringing the deal oh, yeah and, uh, and willing to in- invest in it so yeah but yeah. like you said I mean that I know I know the person you know he's uh you know older and doesn't want to be the one doing the rehab anymore yeah you could admit, have his money work for him and then it's a great great pairing
1: well and again it's just about demonstrating value in your ability to execute and going into maybe a rough neighborhood and having comfort in that and dealing with some really hard situations some bad tenants city issues and just saying all right what doesn't kill me you know makes me stronger yeah basically so
0: yeah and let's let's bring it more to the the present then so i know you got a new deal uh in you know trying to not make this so specific to chicago but it's in on on Ashland and what neighborhood would you say
1: it's in? Yeah, I, for Briscoe. marketing, I like to call it Southport Corridor. Okay. Uh, it is essentially Southport Corridor. It's it's a few blocks west of Southport Avenue. Uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm very excited. I actually am doing one of the biggest deals of my career, uh, arguably one of the scariest because it is a pretty ambitious ground up development. It's a 48 unit new construction in basically the Southport Corridor, Lakeview neighborhood of Chicago. And uh, yeah, I just acquired the land in the last couple of weeks uh it's fully entitled just waiting on my permits and so that's been a really interesting experience because never in my career have i ever taken out a land loan without knowing that i'm immediately going to go vertical so i have done some new construction projects but never anywhere near this size of magnitude and it was always you know not only smaller but it was more imminently converting to construction
0: yeah because at this prior to this the biggest deal you had let's say built was it the 19 unit
1: uh, it was, uh, it was in a, it was about a $7 million project. It was a new construction up in Wulman. That was, uh, oh, nice. 14 units in medical office and underground structured parking.
0: I know the, I know the one, but we go from that to then what's the Ashland deal size. That's
1: 48 units. You know, so yeah. And that's, then that's actually, a, that's you a, know what? That's a big jump. Yeah, we did another one that was interesting. We bought a building at 1911 West Irving Park Road and it was a really run down building. It was six units and really derelict commercial. But what we liked most about this particular deal was it had a massive uh, empty yard in the back. And actually through our work at Fulton, we had built a relationship with a medical tenant who runs a very successful business and they actually specifically wanted to be in North center. So this site came on the market. We were able to negotiate a lease with them for 10 year, 7,500 square foot space. And then I can't believe I did this. We, we acquired the property without even having the zoning in place, which is wow. very, very, very risky. And frankly, Probably wouldn't do that yeah. again. Yeah. What were you? What did you need it zoned for? It was zoned. It was uh, just zoned as it, a so it was it was angel. a dash two zoning. Um, but our what made the project work was the ability to expand the building. So again, we bought on a on a hundred foot wide, one twenty five foot deep lot. We basically bought this building that had four rundown retail spaces, and then it had six apartments above it. And so our vision for the property was to actually take the front six apartments make them into eight and then expand the building from being around 10,000 square feet to about 27,000 square feet. So we basically made an elevator corridor, uh, I'm sorry, a hallway and an elevator corridor to the back and then built a 16 unit addition. So that required a zoning change that allowed us to take advantage of uh, Chicago's transit oriented development uh, ordinance. So that was something, that was the first of that kind. Yeah. So definitely a smaller scale than, than this Ashland project.
0: Yeah, but that's a complicated deal where you didn't have the zoning in place. And then at that, I mean, it's on top of that brown line stop. But that's, uh, you know, at that point, there were TOD deals happening, but not yeah, it was not like what layout. was coming. Yeah. Yeah. And
1: it was funny because even at the very end, our construction lender came through. Who's a great guy. He's done 30 plus projects for for myself and our, my group. Uh, he came through and he's like, you know, I, I didn't really understand what you were actually doing until it was done. What? But, uh, you know, I guess that'll happen on the like 10th deal or
0: whatever. Yeah. You know, yeah. Not so on the first one. Even, but right.
1: at the time, I mean, everything went <clears throat> wrong. It was not a perfect deal by any stretch. You know, there were unforeseen costs. Uh, the retail space delivered late a lot of uncomfortable conversations and in the midst of it, you know, I was not sleeping at night and it was a really stressful yeah. time. And I looked at it and I said, God, why did I do this? And now four or five years later, the tenant's still there. They've expanded into adjacent space. And I'm thinking, you know what? I don't even remember how miserable I was at the yeah. time. It all, it all sort of worked out. In fact, I'm closing a refinance tomorrow to drop my rate by, you know, 30% and wow. taking some money out. So, Long term, great project, but in the moment, it really it was it was challenging. So yeah, and I'm
0: sure the numbers on it were great. If you can build uh 16 or 18 units on the what was this, essentially free land in the back, that yeah, came with it. more or less, yeah, so yeah. It's, so it's not too but bad. it was
1: it was just an example of thinking about things creatively, and yeah, doing things differently.
0: So. Yeah, because one thing that I've noticed on your rehabs, like you you have like a much higher end design, where even for for stuff I've rehabbed, I'm sort of just, I mean, I feel like I'm going higher end, but it's still like I'm not trying too hard like I'm just I'm trying to get the rents where I need them and move on you've done some really really cool projects I mean so let's maybe let's talk let's talk about how you're thinking about design and rehab so how do you approach that
1: um so it's it's interesting I've remodeled maybe I don't know over 350 400 units in my career and I started out always hiring a third-party contractor and then after having a lot of bad experiences with some contractors I had an epiphany where I said, I'm going to figure out and do it for myself. This will be fun. And it was great because it taught me a lot about construction, but it also made me realize this is not the highest and best use for my my time and resources. But what I I tried to do really starting in the last three years was create more of a brand so that the buildings I had renovated were recognizable. They were unique. They were different because there's, as you know, a lot of competition and multifamily Uh, There's a lot of cookie cutter stuff out there. And even as I'm doing some gut renovations now, and I talk to the guys doing the work on the margin, spending more on nice finishes does not cost that much more spending 120 on a light fixture versus 80 or getting a slightly nicer tile for three bucks versus a buck 50. I mean, the labor is all the same and in doing so I've been able to capture, you know, the really high end of the market and some cases set record rents. Um, and at the time, uh, you know, be able to revalue those properties at, at higher appraised values, or create an asset that's more appealing to a buyer. That might be someone looking for more of an armchair investment. But yeah, I've sold one of these buildings. I've done. I sold at a number I can't rationalize. It was a smaller walk-up deal that traded for basically a five cap. Wow. Uh, because like a five zero. Five zero. Wow. Small building, uh, Bucktown. But the guy that came in had looked at 20 walk-ups and said, I've never seen anything yeah. like this. I want this. And it's there's there's more to investing than just money and returns. There's this certain element of, I think, just enjoyment and prestige from some investors buying a building because yeah. it's cool. Not everything is about money. A right. large part of it is about money and returns. But people want to own cool-looking buildings with nice finishes. And I, I found that you can usually get a bigger return from someone that looks at something as being unique and yeah, that's interesting. It's own, it's own brand. It's own, it's just different. And it's, it's just, it's allowed me to have a little more creativity and just mix things up a little bit. Yeah. And
0: I'm sure it's fun. You know that also too, there's a lot of people where they're not, uh, analytical first might be more of an emotional decision maker. So if that's your tenant, yeah, they'll pay up big for having the coolest unit they have ever seen or that, uh, guy or group that bought the property he paid up, you know, big for buying out of 5.0 cap. But, you know, it sounds like it's his money. He can do what he wants and it's a yeah, cool building absolutely. you wanted it. Yeah. So that yeah, that makes a lot of sense. What how are you gonna approach the the Ashland development deal then? Is that gonna be how high so, end are you going with that?
1: Yeah. So that's a great question. Um, you know, that that's it's exciting because it's my first project that I would describe as being mass produced. And so I've been spending a lot of time on value engineering, design finishes. I have a wonderful team uh, that's run by a really good friend of mine who does a lot of the design work on my existing portfolio, my past deals. And so we're trying to come up with a really creative branding and marketing program and then just put something out that's different, but not over the top such that we compromise our construction budget. And that's really actually one of the exciting things about base three development is doing projects that are larger in scale gearing more towards institutional and creating a brand and a following and something that's just unique, special, and beautiful. And so with base three, I mean, the idea starting with Ashland is to incorporate, you know, technology in the future of residential living, you know, things integrating to your phone, smart locks, uh, perhaps Sonos and units and things that don't cost a lot, right. but they give it that little extra edge and it shows that you're early adapting to the, the future of multifamily urban living. You
0: have some technology specifically picked out at this point
1: or what? You know, we're we're going through some of the paces on, on okay. exploring those options, but smart locks are one thing that come to mind. And so yeah. we're looking at the different options for, you know, the, the future of real estate is this little mini computer we have in our pocket. Yeah. Like the iPhone or the Android. Have you done
0: a demo on the latch locks? I have not. That that I think is the coolest. Some people who quit either Apple or Google started it. And it's the it's a, it's a smart lock and it's controlled completely from your phone, but doesn't need to be on Wi-Fi. And so how it works, let's say if you wanted to change a lock, you need to lock someone out. You can do it from your computer. And actually what it does is the app on the the person you're locking out on their phone, when they get to the lock, it, it then makes the change when it touches the phone. So then the app would tell it, I need to lock this phone out. Wow! And so, the, what's cool huh. about it is, it's n- no Wi-Fi, so you don't have to worry about you really being on Wi-Fi. Yeah, or even whatever the near-field thing. I'm not sure what wow. the technology is, but it's so that if I was doing ground up, I'd give that a look. i know retrofit, it's too much. Where yeah, where those are uh installed, I think it was like three hundred a lock. Uh-huh. So if you're doing, let's say a you know a deal where there's two locks on you know front and back door, where this is probably just one door because it's going to be a Corridor, yeah, enter, yep. okay, yeah. Then that's, and you already got to put a lock in, you know. So then, then it's again to your point, it's just a not that big of a jump marginally. Yeah. So that I'd give, I'd give that a look. We have a butter butterfly max intercom on. Yeah, we've started one of our deals matter, that I've really, really liked that, and I haven't had any, any issues with it. But it's that's only on a unit, but yeah, already was installed in the building I bought. Oh wow. So yeah, I would check out latch, and I mean, yeah, you know what we did on our other deals were just a more basic schlag yeah. keypad one but that's not actually a smart lock that's just a lock with the keypad
1: yeah but it's nice people don't want to have to grab keys when they're going to yeah but
0: that's dog. more that's just kind of like an intermediary lock yeah. i feel like it's that's 200 bucks where if you're going to be the new cool building in southport corridor then you go for the latch and yeah. you know have the leasing agent unlock it with their phone every time yeah yeah that's oh. that'd be good yes yes do real estate yeah so yeah the uh um nice well yeah let's think about i mean what else? I mean, I think it's, it's really interesting how you've you learned from Wells Fargo to specialize. That's something that I heard that we didn't yeah. really specifically identify, but you've you've done that too. I mean, you've dipped into doing the office deal and a, a few other things, but really, it's specialized in multifamily value add. So that I, you know, it's interesting to hear the the whole story because then you know, I think it's you you see a deal that comes up, maybe it's the Ashland development deal or whatever it is. You can tell if it's a good deal or not so much yeah. quicker because you're not also doing like office deals in the suburbs or building yeah. hotels or other totally different stuff that's taking you away where you can tell really fast you know if a deal is going to be good and, and then you have everything to execute it now because that's all you're doing
1: yeah 100 no, so. percent that's the interesting thing about real estate is that when i was about to buy my first building in 2008 nothing looked good because the market was hot yeah that could just be a sign that it's not a good time to buy or invest but people like ourselves like to transact and what we're seeing is that yields are falling because people need a place to put money but we're also looking at inflation and other factors that make real estate a continued good investment and so it's it's interesting i mean when i look back at when i started my career I wouldn't do anything unless I was making an eight percent unlevered return, and now the norm, depending on the size of the project, is is a little over six. Yeah, and we've talked a good deal about this offline that the market in the southeast and the southwest is like a four. Yeah, we're talking half. about unlevered. Yeah, unlevered. I'm sorry, unlevered right. return. Yeah. So yeah. and the unlevered yield on cost, right? Yeah, no, I'm sorry. IRI. Yes, unlevered yield on yeah. cost, correct? So like cap rate, like basically NOI over your project cost. Yeah. So so it's really interesting, just. You know, and then that, that's another trend I see um, as I'm looking at buying and renovating other buildings and comparing it to building new, building a new elevator building where you might be able to build a new elevator building with land if you buy the land right for two seventy five to $300,000 a unit. I mean, you right now, you buying a gut renovation project. You're lucky to buy in good areas for $200,000 a door. Great. Well, yeah, that's interesting. I mean,
0: why don't we dive into raising capital next? I think we touched on that before. Mm-hmm. But then the first... You know, the first deal you raised money on was, was that one on Campbell or?
1: Yeah, it was the Campbell Street Project with a single individual who became a, a repeat investor.
0: Nice. And so on that first deal, what was sort of going through your your mind? What was the initial pitch? What was the structure? What was run us through that?
1: Well, it was funny. I had only done three other smaller deals at the time, just these little four-unit walk-up projects in uh, on the north side of Chicago. And so I, I had something I could show as a clear case study, but it was – not my finest presentation. I had an Excel spreadsheet and a picture of the building on a Word doc, Yeah, basically stating like, this is the general concept. Here's how it worked here. I think we can replicate this in the same same opportunity. And so it was funny in my mind, I had this idea that when you went out to raise money, you have to have this very complicated structure with waterfalls, preferred returns, fees, et cetera, et cetera. And so on this first project, We weren't looking to raise all the money in the world. It was about two hundred twenty-five thousand. It was a building that was only four hundred and fifty grand, six-unit Bucktown, if you can believe it. That's what what, it needed. A lot of work, needless to say. It was basically a shell, but it's crazy to look back that that's what the world was like. Um, And the area is, of course, now totally different. But. On this particular project, we went to our investor with this structure of something more traditional, like a 90-10 and splits, et cetera, et cetera. And his simple response, and this is a guy that worked on Wall Street and now runs a multi-billion dollar family office out of based out of New York. Really impressive guy. He basically said, let's do something really simple. I'm gonna help you sign your first note and get you guys off the ground. And I'm going to put up the lying share of the capital. Uh, but I want you guys to put in a little more money. Let's keep it super simple. Let's not overcomplicate this. I want to have a very clear, transparent way of getting this done. Align our interests. Align you guys as managers and look at this as a long-term investment. And uh, you know, keep it simple. And, and I just about fell out of my chair when yeah. I heard that. And then we subsequently went on to buy five other buildings in a well, very nice. clean, simple structure that was super fair. And out of those buildings, I mean, now literally almost 10 years later, we've... Refinance most of them to you know, over 125 percent loan to cost, and made our investor whole, and he's super happy. Yeah, nice, and it all just worked out. So yeah, I was surprised that just keeping it simple was really the way to go.
0: Yeah, I've had a similar experience where you know I worked at two shops prior where the, yeah they would have had a multi-tiered waterfall. You know, so okay, once you're at a eight, this happens. Once you get to twelve, IRR fifteen. You know, whereas super complicated. So I thought, yeah, let's do the same thing when I raise money and i was talking to someone who's very smart and uh, ran a real successful business kind of like what you're talking about was the same deal it's like that's so complicated why wouldn't we just do something straight up split and then there's not any incentive where you need to sell the property or something just to get your incentive fee yeah. so yeah they that was i had a similar experience i mean that's what's a big takeaway for me it sounds like for you where for anybody kind of listening it's you can you know it's just it's up to just whatever you and your partner want to do you and your investor where there's not no
1: right answer there's no one size fits all and as long as you can demonstrate value and you can demonstrate trust confidence that you can be a good fiduciary of someone's money then it is available and you can in many cases you know dictate the terms
0: yeah and then you set up a structure that worked for all of you where it doesn't matter if so what these other people are doing this kind of structure this worked better for you guys and it was a huge success because you what you're talking about you still own the buildings now so then having a simple structure allowed you to keep a lot of those buildings too and you guys have made more money by keeping your chips on the table so to speak so everyone won with that idea of being simple yes for sure spot on well nice cool i mean i think that's kind of everything i wanted to touch on i think let's uh yeah let's just wrap it there great job gabe
1: yeah thank you again it's really an honor to be here and I. love to continue the conversation and it's always you know when you asked about you know how to get ideas and you know mentorship and it's it's actually pretty cool you and I are very similar but you're someone I really respect and admire and you've always been a great sounding board and that's something I would say to people listening that are getting in the business find people you respect admire you look up to ask them a lot of questions and I I've been told you're usually the the average of the five people you're around most. And if you're around really smart, dynamic people, uh, they tend to rub off on you. So, um, you know, I've really followed a lot out of your playbook. And I, again, really honored to be here. Thanks for having me as your guest.
0: Appreciate it. Yeah. I've learned plenty from you about construction and different things and lending. So can't wait to be on your podcast soon. So yeah, no, just kidding. So how can listeners get in touch with you?
1: I think one of the best ways to get in touch with me would be to look me up on, on LinkedIn. So it's Gabe Horstick. And then uh, you can also drop me an email at Gabe at base3co.com, spelled out B-A-S-E, the number three, then co.com. So great. thanks again for having me. This was a lot of fun. Yeah.
0: Awesome. Yeah. I appreciate having you on. I mean, this I think this is a great episode. A lot of a lot of great takeaways. I mean, for, for me, one thing I, we both kind of did was just keep it simple and then get started. I mean, so that's my biggest yeah. takeaway from this. So appreciate Absolutely. you being on. Thank you. So awesome. Well, yeah, until next time, thanks for joining us and we'll see you on the next episode. If you learned something from today's show, leave a review and hit that subscribe button wherever you enjoy your podcast. Dive deeper into real estate investing on Brenneman Capital's website, Brenneman.com, where we have numerous free resources and information that can help both active and passive real estate investors. Accredited investors can get started today as a passive investor in our multifamily investment opportunities by hitting the Invest Now button on our website.
1: The views and opinions
0: expressed in this podcast are those of Drew Brenneman and guests as of the date of recording and do not purport to reflect the views or opinions of Brenneman Capital LLC and its subsidiaries. Views and opinions are provided for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon or deemed as investment or tax advice or an offer to buy or sell securities. The speaker
1: cannot be held responsible for any direct or incidental loss incurred by applying any of the information offered.